This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is Sunday. We are uh, here with a new interview, and we have the pleasure of having on today with us three esteemed guests. Uh, We have with us today Dr. Milenka Cuevas-Guaman, a veteran of the Incubator Podcast. I think this is your fourth stint, Milenka. Dr. Lori Eldridge and Dr. Steve Abman. Uh, Steve, Milenka, Lori, thank you so much for making time to uh, come on the show today with us. Thank you, Ben, for having us. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm going to go through your bios fairly quickly because you all have, uh, you all are very well accomplished uh, physicians. Uh, Milanka uh, Cuevas Guaman is uh, an attending neonatologist at Texas Children's Hospital and is an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And uh, Milanka serves in the executive committee of the BPD Collaborative and spearheads important missions of this international collaborative. She's dedicated her clinical and research career to bronchopulmonary dysplasia and is the co-leader of the BPD consult service at Texas Children's Hospital. Lori Eldridge is an assistant professor at in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine and an attending physician at Seattle Children's Hospital. Your primary focus, Lori, is uh, the pathogenesis of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and you're working to understand the roles of monocytes and epithelial cells in the development of this inflammatory lung disease, and you too serve on the executive committee of the BPD Collaborative. And then uh, Dr. Steve Abman, thank you for making the time. You are the Children's Hospital of Colorado, and you're the director of the Pediatric Heart Lung Center, the co-director of the Pediatric Pulmonary Hypertension Program, the co-head of the Pediatric Task Force for Pulmonary Vascular Research Institute, the director of the Ventilator, Ventilator Care Program. You're the founder and director of the Pediatric Pulmonary Hypertension Network, the founder and executive board member of the BPD Collaborative, and the president of the American Pediatric uh, Society. So thank you all for, for making the time to be with us today. And I'm very excited to talk about BPD with you all. My first question for you is maybe going back to the basics of BPD. And and while we understand, we are probably all familiar with BPD being bronchopulmonary dysplasia, also known as chronic lung disease of prematurity, and um, knowing that this is a complication of prematurity. But at this stage in, in 2023, 2024, what do we know about what BPD is? It seems like we have clinical understanding of what this looks like at the bedside, but what do we know about the actual pathology itself? 
So the word bronchopulmonary dysplasia is so intriguing because it makes it sound like it's a single disease. And yet it's more of a historic term, I think, that relates to the uh, this clinical problem that we face that's relatively heterogeneous and multifactorial, and that it's clearly associated with premature birth, clearly associated with not just acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is so nicely understood and managed so beautifully these days with the advent of surfactant therapies and what we do in the delivery room and many things like that acutely. But there are subgroups of kids who are born prematurely with much more complicated courses where they have prolonged needs for for a respiratory support while in the NICU, but especially that when they get closer to term, they may have variable requirements for therapies to improve how they're doing in terms of respiratory course. Some require very little support, maybe a little nasal cannula oxygen to maintain good saturations and growth and other things, but others have terrible disease, severe disease. They require invasive ventilation with an endotracheal tube in place, which we then like to switch sometimes to a tracheostomy. They require invasive uh, and very careful respiratory management, which is quite different from the early needs they had right after birth. They have nutritional needs, neurocognitive needs. They have so many issues going with their heart function and something, uh, you know, pulmonary hypertension, for example. And then once they leave the NICU, you know, where we tend to think about BPD in terms of an NICU-centric diagnosis or condition, that's when the fun begins in some ways. (laughs) That's when we have these chronic issues of having recurrent respiratory breathing problems. And that even those who appear to be doing okay sometimes have terribly impaired lung function when measured by pulmonary function testing. And now we're learning more and more that these very kids born prematurely with or without this label of BPD can even have high risk for late COPD or late cardiac problems leading to early congestive heart failure or having early problems with renal failure, kidney disease. And so so it's really disease across the lifespan. So the word historically, you know, BPD has so much meaning and history behind it. When first described in 1967 by Bill Northway, who is a radiologist, by the way, at Stanford University, really helped us build the foundation for this. But now the term we know is much more complicated as we try to have greater precision with which we use it to take care of our kids and their families, to design clinical research and trials, perform laboratory research that links with it. And so the term itself has has sort of historic value. But we must be very precise with what our concerns are and why. And and anyway, that's how I think about this in terms of a maybe a starting point for our discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. Melanka Lori, anything you'd like to add, or can I can I jump on to my follow up question? I guess the one thing I wanted to add uh, that you talked about definition, right? And there are tons of publications coming about where should be, what is the best one that it pronosticates the future or that it defines the seeds at a certain point, at what age, does oxygen play a part of the definition or no? There are many things that are going around, but I think what we are forgetting is that maybe for we probably are going to have, if 
different definitions. One that we need to utilize for research, maybe, and then maybe other ones that are going to be important for the clinical outcomes in the sense that not every baby has the same type of BPD, right? There are many phenotypes, endotypes, and many other things that are going to make the difference in this baby. So I think we're very focused on trying to get this, you know, golden rule definition, and we're missing the the big picture. Laurie, any, anything you'd like to add? I just wanted to add to what Stephen Malenka said um, in terms of that this is really a disease across the lifespan. I like the way um, Steve framed that. I think that because of the longitudinal nature of BPD and its trajectory that we're still trying to understand, honestly, there's really this unique need for interdisciplinary approaches to taking care of these patients, both inside and outside of the hospital. And that's one of the things we've been trying to do as a collaborative is bring together neonatology and pulmonary and cardiology and our dietitians and our occupational therapists to really take better care of these kids than we could individually and to really move away from a siloed approach to this very collaborative approach that hopefully will take better care of these kids um, throughout the lifespan of their disease. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because I love this quote from Albert Einstein that says that if he, if he had an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend fifty five minutes defining it, which is seems like yes. what we've been doing with BPD, right? We've been trying yes. to define this, and yeah. we've reached a point maybe where we said, well, the definition is what it is, and let's start trying to look at the outcomes and try to mitigate outcomes. Is there an area of the management, I guess, respiratory management of extremely low birth weight infants and the management of babies with? BPD, moderate to severe BPD. Is there any aspect of that care that we've really sorted out or do we still have lingering questions all the way through, whether it is from birth all the way to 36 weeks and even beyond? There have been major advances in the field. It's been really exciting to be in neonatology and being involved in pulmonary management of these babies and seeing the course of events you know, over the past 20, 30 years has been remarkable. And yet what the price of the improved survival of extremely preterm infants has been is that we have extremely premature babies, 22-weekers, 23-weekers, 24-weekers. And so there's a certain fragility of the lung, of the heart, of other organ systems most broadly. And uh, and so even though we, you know, the incidence of BPD has not changed over the decades, you know, roughly about 40 to 45% of those born before 29 weeks is still the quoted range. Part of the reason why we're seeing so much of it is because more babies are surviving because of improvements in antenatal steroids, surfactant, non-invasive respiratory support, nutrition, all the small things we do with management at the bedside with outstanding nursing care and respiratory therapists and others. And, and so I think these things have made a huge impact. But what we're seeing now is that despite all of those things, there are things that uh, predate birth that probably play a big role in the pathogenesis of disease, what we call antenatal determinants of disease. So it's more than just prematurity alone. It's what happens in terms of maternal smoking or high blood pressure, maternal diabetes, uh, chorioamnionitis. These things can affect how the placenta performs which then could adversely affect how the fetus is prepared, uh, even for premature birth, making the susceptibility there and could be identified of being higher risk even on day one of life because of all those intrauterine features. Then we superimpose on that the ability we can support them through this early course 
And yet what to do with some basic things that then are postnatal factors that impinge on the outcomes? What to do with the patent ductus arteriosus and its controversies? Does that high flow then mediate higher risk for BPD? And if not always, in what subgroup of babies does it have that impact? How could we manage uh, the best way of using ventilator strategies, getting them off the ventilator without doing it too early or too late? (laughs) You know, so many challenges that we face. So many, many things have been discovered. There have been many improvements. But part of the product of success is we are seeing some uh, tough cases that persist, especially in the category of what we call severe BPD. In that, then, we have babies who need very high levels of support that's sustained. They have the worst-looking x-rays, the most respiratory distress, the most comorbidities. Anyway, those are all things that we're struggling with. And uh, to me, that opened the door for why we needed the collaborative. Yeah, and and I want to get to that in, in just a minute. I think you guys have highlighted something about our understanding of BPD, which is so critical to to then have a, the discussion about why the BPD collaborative was pretty much a necessity, which is that in the old days, we used to think as BPD as a pulmonary disease. It was, how do we fix the lung? Which ventilator? Which pressures? But over time, as Steve mentioned, we realized that there are so many factors that are playing a role, whether it is cardiac, whether it is infectious, and understanding that there are so many other organ systems that are being involved, whether it is the gut microbiome we're discovering now uh, having an effect on, on pulmonary outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit about how the disease has changed to where it is today, where it no longer can be solely managed by a neonatologist, and there's a need for a multidisciplinary team, and what that multidisciplinary team ideally should look like, because obviously everybody's concerned about it. I don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, but so, so who, who has the right, who has the right to enter the multidisciplinary team that's caring for severe BPD patients? Maybe instead of looking at who has the right to enter the kitchen, I think about it as sort of, you know, who has the um, privilege of, of, of coming together in this collaborative approach is sort of how I think about it. <laughs> I didn't mean it in that um, way, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we started our team in Seattle in um, late 2017 or late 2018. And over the last six years or so, I've learned so much from my colleagues in this interdisciplinary approach um, in terms of how to manage these babies. And I think every discipline has a unique perspective on BPD, right? So I'm a pulmonologist. I care very much about what the ventilator settings are, what the numbers are, how the baby's work of breathing looks, how synchronous they are with the ventilator, whether or not I can get them more comfortable so that they can grow better and need less sedation and otherwise thrive as an infant. And so that's my focus always when I walk into a room, I immediately zone in on the ventilator. I've learned so much from my neonatology colleagues about treating the whole baby, and we should really be titrating our respiratory support, not to what their PCO2 is or their total bicarbonate level is, but really, is this respiratory support enough for this baby to be moving forward with their developmental therapies? Are they doing the things that they need to do to be otherwise healthy and developing? And then our cardiology colleagues also are a really nice complement to everything else that we're doing. Sometimes we think we're doing great with a baby, and then they have some worsening of their pulmonary hypertension, which implies that we're not supporting them enough. And then we change our strategy. Similarly, um, occupational therapists may say, you know, hold up, you guys were in the room, you thought this baby was doing well. We disagree. This baby is actually doing worse than when they were on more support two weeks ago. 
And together, we really come up with this better longitudinal, comprehensive, collaborative plan um, to use all of our unique perspectives and, and, and niches and really come together with, with a more really fine-tuned plan to meet the baby where they are. Um, and I, I just find it so enjoyable. And this is what makes me run to work is to do this kind of work in a team-based approach. And I'm just so grateful to be part of our team. One thing I wanted to say, I don't think it, it in a solid means, you know, how many people are. I think mm-hmm. it's important of the mindset of the entire group, no matter who it is in the group. And that we also need to think about this is a chronic problem. And what I do today is probably not going to, you know, I'm not going to see a result for several days, weeks, even months. But if you don't have that mindset, then, you know, the next petition or whoever comes is going to change something and it's going to change something and it's going to influence what is going to happen, your long-term outcome. So I think it's that, that, that that's what is important, having that mindset that this is actually chronic and in a way, maybe boring for, you know, some neos went to, went to do the acute stuff, right? The delivery room not necessarily to manage this. And that's okay because I need them to be there. I need them to be managed that acute and that part and all that. But then the chronic is still important, still needs to be managed. Yeah, if I can add to that for a second, please, because please. part of us, part of us were trained, whether you're neonatologist or not, we trained in critical care. And that was part of my background was critical care pulmonary. For neonatology, there's a critical care aspect that, but it's different from exactly what Malenka so nicely described in the sense that the changing philosophy, like early on with acute illness, our goals, you know, to get them off the ventilator quickly, to get them going as smoothly as we can. Yet there's the subgroup of baby where that may have adverse consequences. And I think appreciating that the change in philosophy from acute care to chronic respiratory support, a supportive mode to optimize all the things that Lori so nicely expressed as well about what our long-term goals are. And philosophically, it's one thing, but actually the pragmatics of doing this is another. Because so often in our units, whether it's the NICU or the pediatric ICU or cardiac, we change attending so quickly. We change teams so quickly because of the demands. But these babies require a consistency of care, an understanding of where they've come <laughs> from, what they've got them, gotten to where the part they're at now, how to move forward. So the one thing I'd like to add to the conversation is the term of a communication communication with the families, consistencies of care could be so much better by having team engagement, having the same folks who could still influence discussions and having diversity of folks who are there, but making sure the families get to communicate readily with staff, that we have the same sort of message and goals, even when there are disagreements, there are things that we could do to then decide on the next course of action. And yet if we don't communicate together, if we use the acute care paradigm, then I think we drop the ball on these kids, they don't do as well, and that we're not serving the families well either. And so so that's something I wanted to bring in. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point. And and interestingly enough, you guys mentioned both mindset and communication. And I think it leads us nicely into 2012, where 
the first step into the creation of the BPD Collaborative. I think the story of, I wasn't there, but I the story of how the BPD Collaborative was born is such a fun one and such an innovative one. Steve, can you tell us a little bit exactly what happened in 2012 and what was the impediment for saying, hey, we need we need to to get this off the ground? Yeah, well, well, really, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because every institution uh, on its own was trying to struggle with managing these kids and how to come to grips with the fact that we had absolutely no guidelines with how to care for them. There's no real consensus. We certainly had no multi-center randomized control trial data. We had very little information. And on top of everything, we were starting to see more and more of the kids not just with mild forms of BPD with a little bit of oxygen by nasal cannula, something like that. But these are really still pretty sick kids. And we're all struggling with them. And then the numbers were growing. So we started having a series of informal meetings where we discussed uh, approaches. And we came to realize that it's one thing. We still have to struggle with how to prevent disease. Absolutely. I was told these were not meetings, but lunches. I was told there was a few... A f- <laughs> I, I was told there was food involved. <laughs> the best meetings are food involved, by the way. <laughs> you're, no, you're exactly right. We had a series of lunches and they were just fantastic discussions. And we came to recognize that we have a lot of information from our own experience to share. And that even without the kind of trial data and guidelines, that just having discussions of what these challenges were and helping to define the problems, having these conversations, it really brought together the ideas, you know what, we need to do this with regularity. (laughs) We should probably open the doors to having many centers involved. And the idea of linking the subspecialties, the neonatologists and pulmonologists and cardiologists and everyone else, the developmentalists, the, you know, all the folks together became very readily apparent. And, uh, and that's was really the led to the origin of, uh, this idea of having this collaborative is, uh, is look, we don't have the answers, but together we can get smarter about it, better about it, provide better care and help with our families. And, and those, those were the most uh, important uh, motivators. And on top of that, having uh, academic career development opportunities for folks who are coming out of training to develop new career paths within that and uh, encouraging, again, the interdisciplinary collaborative uh, atmosphere to help lead these things. What's interesting to me is that number one, the the inception story of the BPD Collaborative does reflect this mindset that you guys mentioned about being collaborative, because my understanding is that you met not just neonatologists, but neonatologists and pulmonologists in that case. So I think I think that says a lot about already the open-mindedness of the group. And another interesting aspect of this is the institutions that are represented at these initial meetings. You would expect that a collaborative would involve centers that are, quote unquote, struggling with either numbers or with either uh, not having enough patients. But yet this included Brown, CHOP, Colorado, Johns Hopkins, Children's Mercy Nationwide and Texas Children. These are very big centers that we would all have considered at the time to be some of the centers that have the most experience. So what, what can you tell us a little bit about number one? The centers that gathered together and what did it mean uh, for the idea of collaboration and what were the the foundational work that was set up at these initial meetings for what the BPD Collaborative has become today? I think part of it is that if you think about severe BPD, it's relatively uncommon 
if you put if you even if you go to these big centers right inside so no one single center has enough of these kids to do the research that we will consider you know highest standard control trials so that's why we agree that we needed to work together and and the only way is to you know put the numbers together so i think one of the biggest thing that has come out from the collaborative uh, is the registry it started the registry and a registry that only is not only the NICU stay because you know right you could say there are many neonatology registers but on top of that we have the outpatient registry so we can follow up these kids the course doesn't end at the end of the hospital stay it continues as they follow up and we can see you know the outcomes, the true outcomes that we're talking about on the lifespan. Laurie, I feel like you wanted to add something. Oh, no, I just think it's very exciting to um, be collecting and analyzing data across centers. I totally agree with Malinka that our shared knowledge is so much greater than any individual one center. Um, I think that's true in the research that we are doing. I also think that's true um, in our monthly case conferences. So we will present a difficult case and ask colleagues for, uh, for help and solutions and different perspectives. And on the clinical side, that's been immensely helpful to all of us, especially those of us that are probably more junior um, in terms of learning from our peers about how to tackle a difficult case, what things to think about. And so I feel like there's been so many layers of how we are trying to improve care for patients with severe BPD from research to clinical care. And you know, I think there's a richness too about this idea of how we approach things differently and how are we a certain challenge we might take different tax towards solving it. Mm-hmm. And that's where, as Malinka said, about having the registry to document these patterns, we could actually do some some early stages of research along those lines to see what this variability is about. But one of my favorite things here is that um, uh, a little phrase <laughs> that uh, we could all agree. I could agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. Um, <laughs> so, so part of what we're trying to do is how do we know what we're doing is correct? So when we do agree, we're doing the best we can for outcomes and how our families do. So it's a rich blend of saying, is that what you do? Well, I don't. And here's what you do, but I don't. Or I do mm-hmm. that or not. And so these discussions are so enriching in their own right. And yet the registry, then you put down on paper <laughs> or by, by, by website now, <laughs> but uh, you have the information there. So we could see these patterns. We could see associations. Then we could design even more uh, focused clinical trials or research questions to get more precise. And then we have data to enrich our ongoing discussions. But it's this process of challenge and be challenged, express the physiology and what you want to do about it, and uh, and express what you're finding uh, as being the biggest uh, questions that are persisting. And to me, that's what I really enjoy, even from all of our case conferences, everything we do. And, you know, uh, it's been sometimes the disagreements lead to us to challenge ourselves to then (laughs) say, let's sort this thing out. And that's where the advances, I think, are being made very nicely. And yeah. the willingness to be challenged is something that says a lot about the the, the members and the and the institutions that are part of the BP collaborative. In in the same realm that not one center has enough patience for this, but how do we learn from each other? Mm-hmm. So we've been doing, and we have now done three studies, three point prevalence studies, 
to kind of see, you know, how the centers do things regarding BPD, how are at least the outcomes of those patients, how our population looks. Then we have a second one uh, and a third one that are related to pharmacology and another one to ventilator management, to be specific. And so and now we're going to do one on neurodevelopment. We just completed the data input literally 9, 10, and 11 of November. And so mm-hmm. and there are many things that are coming that we're like, this is, this is what we do at my center. And if people say, hey, that seems reasonable and my work, can we use it together? And so now we're starting to use these tools and distribute it in different places and test it in different places. And so we're going to have soon a nutritional study and nutritional assessment study. Hopefully soon we'll have also an ASD assessment study. Then we're going to have another um, on tracheostomy, a tracheostomy tool and assessment. And so think we're moving we're trying to move the field and trying to improve our research as we can together. This is not going to be one center. And I think the other good point that Steve made, and I want to make sure that people that are listening, there is future for more neonatologists or more pulmonologists that want to come and do this. There's so many studies, research, QI that we can Think that we don't have enough hands to do it. So if they want to join us. Yeah. And so then I guess talking about growth, you started out in 2012, seven centers. Can you tell us a little bit in what are the numbers today? How many centers are a part of the collaborative and how has the collaborative grown since then? So I did the math. So we're Ah. 42 centers. (laughs) Thank you, Malenka. 42 centers. We're 37 centers across the United States and five international centers. So we have Italy, we have Japan, we have Germany, we have Sweden, and we have Canada. So that's how we've grown so far. And I, I think we have a good path. We have set a good path in terms of growth. But I think one thing that I don't, I don't want everybody thinking that you need to be part of the BPD collaborative or have a BPD multidisciplinary team. Everybody needs to run and create one. Right. I think we still need to think about the disease and how it develops. And there are going to be centers that are probably going to be a referral centers for these type of kids, the severe BPD. Not every single center is going to be able to supply with all of the things that these kids need. But we can learn from this sharing knowledge, even from Japan, you know, Germany, Italy. Uh, Canada. So I think it's going to be very important as we start sharing our data with all of these centers. And so what's interesting is that each center that you mentioned collects data independently to towards a database that is that is shared by the entire collaborative. And, and I think that that is a, a goldmine, I think, for anybody wanting to do research or trying to understand BPD a little bit better. So if people are listening and saying, hey, my center should be a part of this, what is, are there specific criteria to join the BPD Collaborative and, and what does the application process look like? It's actually quite simple. In other words, we're not too judgy. Uh, you know, we're very supportive because we're trying to encourage optimal care for our kids and their families is the bottom line. And so we're not, you know, we do, we are connected with academics, absolutely. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that later. But we also feel that just to optimize care, 
getting, opening the doors to the Nikki, what we started talking about at the very beginning of this discussion, opening the doors to subspecialists, uh, having the uh, the conversations, teaching physiology at the bedside or thinking about the physiology and not simply a, a simple algorithm that's been pre prescribed that may not relate to your patient specifically enough. So really challenge the way we think, provide care by making it interdisciplinary. There are many things we'd like to influence, and we'd love for a lot of sites to achieve these goals. To get there, though, we're trying to encourage that they truly are interdisciplinary that they truly have the links between the the specialties along with the neonatologists, that there certainly are supportive services that we feel are part of a programmatic care program. To have some resources to be engaged and interest in being engaged in a lot of the activities of the collaboratives in terms of conferences, uh, entering data into the registry and things like that. And and so they're they're really important and yet we really uh, are really trying to encourage even centers that are just launching to put together these kinds of things. And by expressing them on the application, you know, it's more them thinking locally than really a question of will they be accepted or not. In other words, we try to use the application for them to think through what am I missing in my own nursery, my own hospital system that I could do better. And by getting it on paper, and having that as part of the application, it actually has a feed-forward process of improving those things as they decide then whether they're selected for the collaborative or not. But most of the time, uh, we're really trying to be more open and encourage all levels of, of teams to join us because they really enrich the, uh, the discussions and, uh, and, the, and the goals that have been mentioned. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meadjohnson.com. So one of the things that we talked about throughout this episode is that BPD is a, is a complex disease. There are many aspects of the pathology that we could look at, whether it is from a, from a cardiac standpoint, pulmonary hypertension, nutrition, all the things that are connected to BPD. How does the collaborative approach all these potential opportunities for research? Do you guys do this sequentially? Do you guys have focus groups? How does that work? So we call it ad hoc groups. I don't know why we decided to call it that, but that's what we call <laughs> ad hoc groups. And so we have a, epidemiology. We have the pH subgroup. We have ventilation subgroup or mechanical, uh, yes, ventilation subgroup. The pH uh, means the pulmonary hypertension subgroup, right? No, pH is pulmonary hypertension, yes. Right, not, no acid base. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I have to. A I new mean, group. That... We'll have a new group. We <laughs> <laughs> get that one too. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, nutrition, we have the advocacy. No, we have the patient care, nursing care subgroup. We have neurodevelopmental subgroup. So, you know, we, and I, I don't think I'm forgetting any ad hoc group right now. But that's there is a advocacy group, Monica. I think you started to say that. Yes, the advocacy group. Actually, I want to highlight the advocacy subgroup because at the end of January 2024, we're going to launch a Zoom 
parent support group. So it's not just uh, for, you know, so it's going to be for everybody in the nation and our international centers too. Can I, can I add to that briefly? Because that is so important. The other thing, we have these annual meetings where we get together as a collaborative that's linked with it. it, it, it Children's Hospital of Philadelphia plays a big role in organizing this. Malenka is one of our leaders with that, where we have sort of a, 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 a conference for a day and a half, right, on different topics. But uh, Malenka and others have always encouraged the families and the parents to present there, has always encouraged that we talk about issues of diversity in terms of uh, of establishing uh, 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 parallel outcomes, making sure we're, we're not letting... Uh, you know, socioeconomic factors or any kind of uh, implicit bias, you know, uh, affect the outcomes of our kids and their long-term uh, long outcomes as well. And so having the families there, uh, social workers there, palliative care teams. And so the advocacy part is something that's incorporated into the very soul of the BPD collaborative as well. <laughs> so you, you're touching on a lot of subjects that I wanted to actually ask you about. So number one, the advocacy <laughs> work done by the collaborative, Tamara Lewis being one of the main investigators who's published a lot on this is, is quite incredible. Let's talk about the BPD collaborative meeting. So you guys meet uh, once a year uh, in association with with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, what is the goal of the meeting, and what do you guys uh, aim to do at this at this conference? So I think that we I I I think of it of two goals. One is a little bit of kind of an administrative meeting and giving opportunity to each ad hoc group to present what they're being working on, what the future is going to be. And at the same time, giving them time to meet in person because it's different. And so they can plan, move ahead. And we have, you know, many groups, many people that have been here for years, but there are people that are joining. So we want to group all of these groups together and kind of give them the same information and the part so everybody can succeed. So that's one. But the other one is give opportunity to talk about uh, research or QI or the things that are important to us in the sense of if we're struggling with tracheostomy right now or if we're thinking about genomics, if we're thinking what are the things that we're struggling in our kind of individual centers that we want to bring a conversation together. So we have panel, we create panels. And so we kind of uh, always ask the members whether they want to hear about, what are their struggles, what are the things that you need to talk about, or you want to talk about. And we try to always come up with uh, speakers that are from our own side too. So you're highlighting our junior faculty or what our, your sites are doing that we might not be hearing about it, right? Or it's not, might be published, might not be published, but there are things that you're working on. And so I think that's one of the things that is also very important. And hopefully in the future, at least that part of the meeting, it's going to probably also uh, get people that are outside from the collaborative. And it's going to be important uh, how we move forward with this part of the meeting. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, can I add a little bit, please? Because I want to bring Lori into this conversation because Lori represents the very best along those lines. Lori's doing laboratory science linked with her clinical interests and clinical goals. And, and so she's playing a big role in having more translation of, of other other science and research. And so, Lori, do you want to comment on your, your thinking on that and plans and stuff? Oh, thanks, Steve. 
Yeah, just to add to what Malinka was saying, um, I totally agree. I think one of the most exciting parts of the meeting is the growth of these scientific sessions where people are presenting all types of research from QI to clinical research to translational science. And one of the things we're trying to do is add a translational science working group to the collaborative, um, really trying to have better predictors of long-term clinical outcomes using different biological specimens from blood to cells from tracheal aspirates. I'm particularly interested in the airway epithelium and how BPD develops in which kids develop hyperinflation and severe airway disease. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting questions to tackle. And just like everything else in the collaborative, we can tackle those so much better together as a multi-center approach than we can in any one institution, both because it's more of a rare disease to get samples from these patients that are more severe. And two, we want to be able to have translatable uh, findings across uh, the entire BPD population. And so doing multi-center approaches is a much better way to do that. So we're um, sort of on the ground floor of this, uh, launching this translational group and with the ultimate goal of establishing a biobank for rare specimens. And then ultimately, we hope this will lead to multi-PI multi um, NIH applications for further research on the translational side of BPD pathogenesis. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Steve, for bringing it up. I, I think it's interesting <laughs> because you guys are mentioning the growth of the collaborative. You're mentioning all these ad hoc groups. And yet, yeah. I think it's a huge opportunity for for trainees, for young career, mid-career physicians to join these groups and really focus on a problem that potentially could be solved within, within one's career. And these groups are not overwhelming. They're usually a small bunch of very friendly mm -hmm. people. And I think they yes. each one represent a great opportunity to, to join a team, collaborate with centers around the US and around the world. And I think, and I think going to the meeting and connecting with the teams there and then, and then participating, I think is a, is a huge step in, could be a huge step in someone's career. And I think, um, that alone could potentially drive people towards, um, the work you guys yeah. are doing. You know, Ben, thanks so much for that comment. You're spot on. Yeah. That's exactly what this is about. And, uh, in fact, one of the conferences that we had, we had a, a discussion on, uh, on team science and the mm -hmm. dynamics team science and how to encourage career development within that context and supporting more of our junior faculty being more engaged, also being the first authors on projects, but having the support of others. And the networking is tremendous, uh, you know, very rewarding relationships across multiple sites are established. And so, and so to me, that's how we could enhance our pool of talented clinicians and clinician scientists for, for the next generation as well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I then wanted to go back to something that you guys mentioned, which is that you are very conscious about trying to involve both patients and families in the work being done by the collaborative. And I think anybody listening will be like, why? The BPD parents are usually the ones we as neonatologists fear the most. They've been there so long. They are so frustrated because obviously uh, things could have gone better and their baby is now suffering from, from chronic lung disease. Can you tell us a little bit about what these families have brought in terms of their input towards the collaborative and what can we learn from these parents and these patients? Everything in a word, but I don't know. Talking too much. Um, I don't know if you guys want to handle this. Yeah. So I, I think I'll start with the, at the bedside. I actually think those are the families that I, I like the most because they actually going to have more information about the baby sometimes than anybody else in the team. They really yep. know their kids. 
at some point, it's probably some of the people that admire it the most because for the same thing you're saying, it, it's such a chronic process they have gone through and so many ups and downs. And now we're here and kind of having trouble launching, right? Getting out the NICU. And, and there is still there every day to try to accomplish that. And and they see the big picture that maybe we don't see. So that that's that's what I get like from my my parents at the bedside. Now in the collaborative and how to involve it is that that when you don't have like for example here sometimes you know we are thinking about putting a tra- a baby on a trach, and so we'll try to contact a family that has gone through this journey to help this family decide and go through that journey. So at the level of the collaborative. We have parents that are like, if you want them, you know, junior or middle career into this, or, you know, they have graduated. And so having that perspective that it is, and uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And yes, you have to go through all those hoops. That's what these parents bring up to these other parents. Because it's hard when, like we said, there, I ha- I can have, you know, two BPD kids, let's say, together in in the same kind of area or pod, but everybody else is kind of on their acute phase and they're leaving or they don't have BPD, a chronic problem, then where do my parents go? If they, we don't have this community that we're trying to create and develop at the level of the parents too, then they cannot discuss the same things. If, if there's not the same understanding of sharing stories. So I think that's that's what I, I I get from my parents here and locally and also the parents at uh, the national level. What about you, Laurie? I mean, what what is your experience and and do you see these families also outside the NICU? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that I love about BPD care is this sort of longitudinal approach, right? We follow babies through multiple transitions uh, in their disease course. So from the NICU to the PICU to the floor service to the outpatient setting. And we really have a, a, a unique perspective on how these babies are doing over time. And you really get to develop these very rich, deep relationships with families um, over time. We've had babies that have been in the hospital for years. And of course, we know those families extremely well. I agree with Malenka. These families are heroes in my mind, right? What they endure to be present and take care of their kids in a very tough situation. I've had the pleasure of being part of the advocacy group that's led by uh, Dr. Audrey Miller at Nationwide. And um, we have had some parent advisors come and talk to us about what would be helpful. And there's lots of themes, you know, from a, a clinician's perspective, these babies are ever so slightly, but truly getting better over time. And so it's, we see them in a very positive light and that things will get better with, with good growth and, and time and patience. And the families simultaneously are really dealing with so many other things like grief and trauma and distrust and changing providers all the time. And so really trying to listen to them to figure out how we could provide more support is how this um, Zoom uh, program came to be is that we really identified that they need more peer mentorship. They don't need to hear more about us from us about BPD pathogenesis. They need to connect with each other to figure out how to ride through this storm in a way that fits their family. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to launch that in the next couple of months here to hopefully um, provide support across the nation and eventually internationally. Oh, I just want to, you know, really echo that because there's <laughs> inspiration, frankly, you know, mm-hmm. I think 
the courage or the challenges, the taking them on, and, and not that they're always perfect, right? There's strife, there's conflict that'll be there, but we understand the dynamics better. We could be better at our jobs that way. But they also make us happier and more satisfied with our jobs because we see the challenges. We we could really work at so many different levels to improving care, but working with families is vital. But also, I always think this, is as I explain things or think I'm explaining things, Sometimes it's the most innocent of questions or the most specific <laughs> questions, right? That makes you rethink, do I really know this? And if you're transparent and honest and use simple language with expressing goals, you sometimes realize that we we don't really know so much, that we need to study something different because of a question that was raised. Does my baby really need a fund application? Like it's yes or no on my bias and things like it, but you have to be honest and saying, you know what, I'm not really sure and here's why. And so when we do get back together as a collaborative to decide of how we're going to use registry data, do another study, sometimes it's stimulated by those very questions that are raised by our families that make us really realize where the gaps in our knowledge you know, currently are and how to better address them. So it is a two-way street and Absolutely. part of the rewards is, is Lori mentioned, yeah. I think when parents ask you whether it is the right time for a tracheostomy, I mean, they just put the finger on the pulse of something that we I are still to, uh, exactly. still trying to figure out, huh? Sure. Exactly right. As we're getting close to the end of this conversation, I wanted to maybe ask you one more question and and that would be, of all the work that you guys have done with the BPD Collaborative, what is the one work product that you are the most proud of? My favorite from the BPD Collaborative is the paper that you first authored, Steve, in 2017 in the Journal of Pediatrics on the interdisciplinary care of patients with BPD. That was That's my favorite. Still, it has yet to be dethroned. But I'm just curious, which one is, <laughs> what is the work product that you guys have been involved in that you're like, this is really something that, because it's kind of nice when you start a project, a collaborative, and you're not sure exactly, are we going to matter? Are we going to have a meaningful impact? And then when you see a work product, something that that is that does have a measurable impact being published or um, being used in other institutions, I think that is the the consecration of of all the work. And, and that's why I think it's interesting. It'd be interesting to hear which one is which for you guys. I have to say that paper that you just mentioned of Steve is also my favorite. And that's how I teach the residents about BP. I start with those figures and, and move through um, how we think about uh, the approach to chronic ventilation in, in patients with severe BPD. So that's my favorite um, going backwards. Going forward, I think one of the things that I'm proud of being a part of is um, in our ventilation subgroup led by uh, Robin McKinney is this point prevalence study that Malinka mentioned, um, looking at different uh, strategies for mechanical ventilation in patients with severe BPD. And we identified three really different strategies. And now we're starting to dig into whether or not that represents practice variation across centers or whether these are phenotypically different patients that need different strategies. And so that very simple point prevalence study is really hypothesis generating and leading to the next stages of research into how we better support these babies. And I think it's really exciting. So first of all, I'd like to say the paper I get a lot of credit for is, again, a team effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. And An interdisciplinary to me, effort? To me, it was a, a joy to do. 
So it's really reflecting all the conversations and getting to know folks that I didn't really know very well. And it was so much fun. <clears throat> it was a joint collaboration. But I'd also like to flag what you mentioned before, Tamara Lewis's work with mm-hmm. Matthew Kilt as well, the two of them, in terms of the disparity questions and what it raised, especially post-George Floyd and so many so much growing awareness in mm-hmm. academics more broadly. And that we're responsible for the social and economic forces <clears throat> understand those and 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 bias and how we give care even within our medical centers where we think we're sometimes above the fray on these issues and things are unmasked by these questions and so to me it stimulated a lot of deeper thinking and that paper represents a start at looking at that that I thought was so helpful. Yeah, Anka, you're not escaping that question. I know. <laughs> Well, for me, I, I have to put it in, in, I think, in different perspective. Because I joined as I was finishing my fellowship. So the BPD Collaborative. I joined as I was finishing my fellowship. And for many reasons, it, it really became my academic career. And mm-hmm. I I mean, I know it sounds silly to say I feel accomplished now. Uh, in, but, I mean, I, I, I know I still have many years to go. I know that. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I, I went from, you know, like having meetings of seven, eight people to now having meetings with 300 to 400 people, gone from, you know, we're planning the registry to now I have a manual operations and we have people that help us with the registry in many ways. Uh, we have Sarah Kors, John Lin. And then even more creating the, the meetings I've been doing, I've been the chair for the uh, annual meetings for the past five years too. And so creating new content, getting people ready and encourage, uh, you know, and, and, and still having that, that energy that, that gets from other centers and still getting the energy from all of the people because pretty much almost all of the people that we started are still working on it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's creating, I mean, in a way, it's creating my family yeah. outside from work. And so I think that's that's what I'm more proud about. I can even remember things in my life, like my my kids go to the meeting, people know my kids. And so even that, it is, it just is, yeah. <laughs> it's a family. So as we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about when the meeting will be taking place in uh, 2024? Yes, I can <laughs> I'm going to try to remember. In, in, as, as people are maybe wanting to find out more or maybe join the BPD Collaborative, I'm going to direct people to the great website that you guys have launched not too long ago, the bpdcollaborative.org. We will link uh, this website on the episode show notes, but you are also active on social media. You are present on X, formerly known as Twitter, at B <laughs> underscore BPD underscore collab. We will also link that in the in the show notes. And uh, from there, you guys can find out more about the collaborative. There's actually uh, contact information to inquire about joining the collaborative and has all, all of the types of information that uh, we brought up on the on this episode. Melenko, do we have a... Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So it's March 6th and March 7th, 2024. And that will be in Philadelphia? It's going to be in the Hilton Philadelphia at Penn's Landing. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yes, and it's all uh, in person this yeah. year. Yeah. Human connection is what matters most, huh? And it's always yeah. sunny, even if it's March. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was a great conversation. Thank you, uh, Milenka. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you, Steve, for making the time today. I think we all learned a lot and congratulations on all the work that you guys are doing with the collaborative. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.